The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right. Um, I want to just go through and remind us of some of the things that we talked about over the last few weeks. We have been, uh, I've tried to kind of set up what's been happening over the course of the time period between the close of the book of Malachi all the way to the time of Jesus and really use this opportunity to lay a foundation so that when we get to the New Testament, some of the things that are already there begin to make sense. I, I think this was always my impression when I read the Gospels was that the Gospel writers, maybe even all the New Testament writers, sort of felt like you should know some information before you started reading that maybe you didn't know or you felt like you're missing something. And they also seem to, as they write, have a better understanding of the Old Testament than you or I do. And, and they seem to reference things sometimes that either go straight over our heads or around us in one way or another. And someone has to kind of go, remember, this is back in the Old Testament, and you're like, oh yeah, there, of course, there it is, and didn't even realize that. Well, I'm hoping that some of this in the meantime, between Old Testament and New Testament, will help kind of lay some of that groundwork, maybe things you've never thought about, or things you didn't understand, or uh, just bits of history that you didn't know. And so, over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is some armies that kind of moved in, conquered the area, you know, sought to enact certain rules and things that happened in the region. But now we're starting to get closer, starting tonight, we're starting to get closer to some things that you're probably going to recognize or some things that you've heard of before, you know, obviously wars that were prolonged and things like that that you've probably, you probably remember, some uh, temple things that, that you probably have heard of before. And so, uh, as we get closer to a lot of those things, you're going to start seeing the formation of things and the reason for things that start to transpire in the New Testament. Uh, some reasons that when Jesus comes in, the people's hackles are already up, right? They're kind of already tense, and it seems like a powder keg already in the region. All right, so over the last couple weeks, what we saw was uh, that Alexander the Great had moved in with the Greek army, and one of his goals, one of his big goals was to really Hellenize, or that is change the rest of the world, influence them by Greek culture. Now, what we did see, and I think we can safely conclude now 2,300 years removed from Alexander the Great, is that that was very much a God-divinely-inspired, divine, divinely-authored event in, in history, as, as really everything is. It opened the door for not only a common language to be established in Greek that the New Testament would then be written in and that the apostles would be preaching to the Gentiles in, but it also paved the way for even the Jewish faith to go global. So we saw that over the last few weeks as well uh, as the customs and the, the language and the civilization of the Greeks began to spread, people began to look at Greek, Greek culture and go, hey, we kind of want that. But then Alexander the Great died in his global conquest at 33 due to what we think was alcohol poisoning. And when he died, he left his kingdom 
And he, literally the last, I didn't say this last week, the, his last words on his deathbed, they asked him, who should we leave the kingdom to? And he said, whoever is strongest. <laughs> so, so he dies, and the only thing they can figure out to do, basically, is split his kingdom up in, in four pieces. And the vast majority of the kingdoms went to two particular generals of his army. One's name was Seleucus, and the other's name was Ptolemy. Those names are really important, and you kind of got to just remember them. Two generals of his, of his military, Seleucus and Ptolemy. Seleucus takes, uh, we're going to see a map in just a minute, but takes Asia and Syria, takes the northern area, and Ptolemy takes Egypt and Palestine. So those are really important, and they're going to come into play tonight. So in general, when the Ptolemies took over the land where Jerusalem is, the Palestinian region, if you want to call it that, the Ptolemies were typically pretty tolerant. They allowed the Jews, as long as they gave their taxes, as long as they paid their taxes, that's all we care about. You pay your taxes and you can worship however you want. It doesn't really matter to us. And I think the general feeling, as I kind of read through a lot of history in that time, is, is that the Greeks were pretty confident that our culture is going to win the day, no matter what. So we're not really, we don't really feel threatened in any way. So yeah, it's fine, you can do your thing, but you're going to eventually look to us at some point, and you're going to go, well, we want to speak your language, we want your money, and we want, to, we want to do the things that you're doing because we want that kind of cultural influence. And so, as long as they paid their taxes, they were allowed to continue uh, doing the things that they wanted to in Jerusalem for the most part. So, Ptolemy II comes in, and it was here under Ptolemy II that he, he, was a, he was a learned person, he loved books, he loved those kinds of things, and so his librarian in his capital city in Egypt, Alexandria, you know, says to him, hey, uh, I think the Jews actually have a lot of really historic literature that would be really handy in our library, I think people would really like that, the only problem is it needs to be translated into Greek in order for it to be beneficial to anybody, and so Ptolemy II and several others begin to contribute to the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. This also, we saw last week, has the fingerprints of the Heavenly Father all over it because it allows the Greek-speaking world to become familiar with the expectation that the Jews had of a coming Messiah. So you can tell automatically, even though there's 400... This is called the silent years, the 400 years of God's silence that as you look at history, it's anything but silent. There seems to be a lot of groundwork being laid by God in establishing many things, common languages, common cultures. Uh, uh, and honestly, as bad as it sounds and as, as historically terrible as we've known it to be for the Jews to assimilate into other cultures, as it, as it pertains to the gospel spread and their gospel ministry eventually unto the Gentiles, it might have actually been a very good thing that that happened. As bad as it is that the Jews are going to begin doing some of the things that they're going to be doing, granted, it will eventually lead to Jews proclaiming the gospel to those same Greek-speaking people. So in that sense, it actually is very good because without that, we wouldn't be here, right? We certainly wouldn't be worshiping Jesus if we were. So just as a reminder, here's what the map kind of looked like up to the point where we ended last week. So I got my little handy-dandy laser pointer here. Uh, remember, the Seleucids under Seleucus took this region, okay? This was the area of, we're just going to broadly call it Syria, all right? So 
Syria up in this region and on over. This is the Seleucid Empire. The Ptolemaic Empire is all the way up into Palestine and down through Egypt. Okay? Now, let me ask you. We've done quite a bit of history in here. Okay? None of us are history experts. I get it. But we've done quite a bit of history. What are the odds that these two kingdoms are going to peacefully coexist? Huh? What do you think? Slim to none. All right. So inevitably what takes place is one gets a little big for their britches and they start to kind of pick on, pick on the other one where the other one is weak and the other one gets mad. They respond back and back and forth and go... And, uh, and, well, that happens now. And even when you got a house full, filled with kids, you know, one brother tends to pick on the sister, the back and forth, and, you know, all those kinds of things. That's going to be the case throughout human history, and it certainly is no different uh, in this region. So, so, tonight, there is a transition from the, what has been the Jews under the Ptolemaic Empire, now to the Jews under the Seleucid Empire. So there's going to be a change of the guard in who rules this area. So in Palestine, tensions are growing. But you have to understand too, and just kind of like put yourself in this position, you have multiple things going on right now. And you're going to have to hold multiple things in your mind at the same time. One is the Jews are ruled by Greek-speaking people. So Ptolemy, Seleucids, they're all in the area. They're all Greek. All of those are Greek. And they're in the area. And so they are ba basically competing for rule over Palestine. But inside Palestine, you have Jews that are warring against each other. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Okay, so just kind of keep that in mind throughout this. So Hellenization is coming in. The temptation or the push for cultures to be changed to Greek culture. That is Hellenization, okay? So Hellenization is being pushed from within the Jewish ranks by a strong party of wealthy and priestly aristocracy who by reason of their social position enjoyed the privileges of the royal court and curried the favor with the king. So essentially, inside Palestine, this is, tell me if you've heard this before. There was the common people and what they wanted. And typically, the commoners wanted conservative, um, religious institutions. But the aristocracy wanted liberal, pushing the envelope, take us into Greek culture, paganism, as far as we could get it. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> so... Just, if you, if you read history, you'll find that is always the case. A hundred percent of the time throughout history, that's how it goes down, right? Is exactly like you're seeing it play out on the news today, okay? It always plays out that way. It's the same as it's always been. Mankind has not changed one iota since the fall, all right? So it just, just remember that. Um, so there's this aristocracy, and how does the aristocracy get their money? Well, they don't, they don't get it by bucking the system, all right? Do you understand that? They don't get it by pushing back against the people in authority. They get gain wealth by appeasing the people that have it, all right? So if you're in a region that is 
owned or conquered by anybody, you're only going to be in favor with them if you appease them and you go along to get along, right? So essentially, the rich aristocracy don't want to lose what they've got, so they are doing everything they can to curry favor with their new king or their new kings, the Ptolemaic dynasty. All right, so additionally, this whole period was marked by this rivalry between two houses. Okay, you're going to have to remember this, so just underline these on your, on your worksheet. The house of Tobias and the house of Onius. They're two very important players in the events that take place today. So each of these had a lot of influence uh, over a lot of offices of political power in Palestine, particularly the high priestly office. So what's about to happen in Palestine, because the Greeks rule, the Ptolemies right now and eventually the Seleucids, uh, what's about to happen in this region is, um, well, is scandalous would be one word, is devilish would be another word, it's demonic essentially is what's, gonna be, what's about to take place. So, but it, it all centers around these two houses, the house of Tobias and the house of Onius. So, there is a high priest. Go ahead. House would be a family. Uh, the, the family of people connected to, in one way or another, related to these two individual patriarchs. Precisely. It always boils down to two mob families. All right? Always. Go ahead. <laughs> Not two mobs families. No, no, no. Uh, no. It, it, it's always going to boil down to an, someone making an offer they can't refuse, right? It's always. It's always going to be there. But uh, so, since, go ahead. Say again. Okay, well, hold on to that. Okay, so th there's going to be, yeah, eventually, that's going to be the case. Okay, so, so it's, most of it's going to boil down to who runs the show in Palestine. Remember, so uh, Alexander the Great walks into Jerusalem and he gives them religious freedom. And he gives them the ability to kind of, as long as you pay your taxes, sort of run the show a little bit. Ptolemies do the same thing when they take over after Alexander dies. In some ways, that's really good because it preserves, you know, their religion. They're able to practice Judaism in at least to the degree that they practiced it um, during that time. So that, that's pretty good. The downside of that is, is when you kind of leave a sort of power vacuum, then it creates, it, there is no power vacuum. Somebody's going to step into the void and take control. And normally... Stop me if you've heard this one before. The people who just work every day for a living are going to be the ones that take the brunt of whatever that power play is up top. All right, That's just always going to be the way it is. So you kind of have a little bit of that going on right now. You've got two powerful families that are vying for control, and you've got uh, one, which is the house of Onius, and the other, which is the house of Tobias, and they're going to be battling back and forth. And he, here's what I've tried to do. I, I'm going to sort of spare you on some of this, but the back and forth that goes on during this time period gets so convoluted and messy that it's difficult to follow the storylines, particularly when they're people you've never heard of before, all right? 
So I've tried to pare down a lot of that and just keep it to the as basic as I possibly can in terms of the movement. We're going to get to him. We're going to get to that whole dynasty in just a second, and you'll see why some of this stuff is going on. Okay, so go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when two elephants fight, it's always the grass who suffers. Yes, uh, that is absolutely the case here. Uh, okay, so the high priest, who is Onius II, Onius II. Okay, so just whether you remember his name or not is not the biggest deal. But you might want to just underline some of the names that we're saying here in your handout so you can easily look back and remind yourself who these people are. Yes. He is part of the house of Onius. Okay. So, Onius, we, we kind of like him. Well, we kind of like him. We don't love him, but we kind of like him. He is a little bit more conservative. He really wants to, more than anything, uh, preserve a lot of what the Jews do in religious practices and things like that. And he refuses to pay a tribute tax to the Greek emperor Ptolemy IV. Okay. Rejection of paying taxes to the ruling people, the ruling pagans. Have you heard this before? You've heard this before. This is a question posed to Jesus in the New Testament. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The people don't want to pay taxes to Caesar. All right? This has been going on for a long time. Okay? So just know, Onius is saying, I don't want to pay taxes my 20 talents of tax to Ptolemy the fourth. At which point, Joseph, who is a son of Tobias, he is in favor of. So he's the progressive elite. He kind of wants to push. The house of Tobias in general wants to push the envelope more towards Greek culture, which we're going to see in just a minute. Okay, Tobias tends to be the more progressives. Onius tends to be, not always, but tends to be the more conservatives, okay? So just kind of, if, if that helps to put those in categories, because uh, the story can get kind of twisted if you don't. Um, so Joseph, who is in the house of Tobias, because he's the son of Tobias, had himself appointed as tax collector for the whole country. So now he puts himself in a place of authority, or gets himself into a place of authority, and obviously he's going to gain that authority. Why? Because he's saying... Hey, I'll collect taxes for you, and we'll be sure that these taxes go up there. So now we have two houses that are warring against each other. The house of Tobias, in general, is favored, is in favor to the Greeks, and is favored by the Greeks, and is going, hey, we'll, get, we'll, we'll secure all this stuff. The house of Onius is, in general, going, we don't want all this stuff. We want to be Jews in this country, and so leave us alone, Right? Don't tread on me, sort of deal. All right. Uh, so Joseph and his house obviously became incredibly rich because he was a tax collector. Have you heard this before? You've heard this, you've heard the whole bit about the tax collectors before. All right. Do you understand why the tax collectors are hated? Or are you starting to see why the tax collectors are hated? They're always in favor of the people who are ruling over the Jews in the land. Got it? Okay. So, 
as such, not only does he become tax collector, I think I, did I skip a slide? Okay, let me go. What did I do? Oh, I see. I got it. I got it. Okay. All right. So he obviously got a lot of power. He got a lot of wealth. With a lot of wealth comes frequently a lot of power. And so these two houses are set up. One is in the high priestly office, the house of Onius. The other is in a powerful, like uh, you might think of it as secretary of the treasury or something, something along those lines, position in the, in the government. And those are essentially the two most powerful positions in the land at the time, and they're two competing and warring houses. All right. Now, Vicky asked the question, well, what's Ptolemy doing? Shouldn't he step in and just say, look, here's how it's going to go. All right, I'm just going to tell you how the cow ate the cabbage. Well, about this time, the Seleucids up north who are in Syria started to desire this area called Palestine, which is down south of them. Do you remember eons ago, as we were talking about this whole region, we called it the Fertile Crescent? You remember this? Okay, the Fertile Crescent. Remember I said back then, this has always been a a center of, of powerful control in the region. Water is plentiful. You can, in, in that area, obviously, that's a, commo- a huge commodity. It is everywhere. But, but uh, people war over it because you can grow things there, and that is the power, right? All the way into Mesopotamia, into Iraq, and that whole area over there in, uh, in Babylon and that kind of place, all the way down to Egypt and up around. So that area has always been fought over. So the Seleucids begin to look at the Ptolemies and go, I think the Ptolemies kind of have some weakness, and so we want control of Palestine, so we're going to walk in there, and we're going we're gonna to pick a fight, and we're going to try to gain control over it. So these little skirmishes or battles over this area became known as the Syrian Wars, and they tried several times, and they failed to get control, but finally, in 198 B.C., they were successful... And with that victory, the Seleucid Empire stretched south across Palestine up to the borders of Egypt. So now, all of a sudden, the control goes in, the, in Palestine from serving the Ptolemies, who are Greek, to serving the Seleucids, who are also Greek. All right, The Greekness didn't change at all, just the hands right, and the, the style of rule. Okay, So now... We go from the Ptolemies ruling to the Seleucids. All right, totally different dynasty, totally different rule. You've got a new constitution, you've got a new Supreme Court, you've got a new everything going on in the land. So it's all, all new, okay? Now, what do we think about this? Well, just like everything that's new, that when you first get a new pair of pants or shirt or something like that or anything, car, don't you kind of think, I like this. And then you start driving it for a little while, and then you start wearing it, and you're like, you know what? I don't really like it as much as I used to. Well, that's kind of the case for somebody that rules you, because you think, you know what I hated about the Ptolemies? They had this and this and this and this going on. I didn't really like that. And here's the Seleucids. They're new, and they're fresh, and they're hip, and they're young, and they you know, wear their cool clothes. And we really like the, Ptolemy, uh, the Seleucids a little bit better. Well, that's the case here in, in Palestine. The Jews initially kind of welcomed what was happening there. There's even reports that when Antiochus the Great, Antiochus III, he's called the Great. I don't know who named him. I don't know if he named himself, which is kind of, that's sort of pompous, but 
uh, I guess, par for the course. Uh, Antiochus III, who is called Antiochus the Great, walks in. There's some rumors that Jerusalem was so anxious to see the Seleucids come and rule the area that they opened the gates for him and they welcomed him in. Some people debate that, but whatever. The point was they kind of liked the Seleucids at first. And because they were so favorable to him or because they treated him so well, just like they did with Alexander the Great, remember when he walked in, uh, he gave them a little bit of religious freedom so long as they paid their taxes. But initially, he let the tax burden go because there's a little bit of a skirmish over different areas and things like that. So he allowed them to rebuild. While you're rebuilding, you don't have to pay any taxes. But then once the rebuilding is done, you can, you, you can start paying taxes again. So that was a good thing. And they really enjoyed that. And so the Seleucids are off to a really good start. It doesn't end well. Okay, spoiler alert. It doesn't, it doesn't end well. But for the time being, the Seleucids are doing pretty good. Now, when the Seleucids took over... Joseph, who is from the house of Tobias, remember these houses again, Onias tends to be the more conservative, Tobias tends to be the more liberal, or flat out is the more liberal. Uh, Joseph, a man named Joseph, he's from the house of Tobias, and his followers transferred allegiance from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids, whose government was in dire need of money. So, with stunning speed, the house of Tobias goes, did, you, did we say Tobias? I mean, did we say uh, the Ptolemies were our king? No, the Seleucids. That's what we meant. We want the Seleucids. As soon as control switched, so did the house of Tobias. They, like, I mean, just overnight. All right, so their allegiance now is squarely in line with the winners. This is like my, my children who watch a football game. They root for whoever is winning on the scoreboard, right? And as soon as the other team takes over, like, did I say I was going for the Cowboys? I'm going for the Patriots, or whatever it was, you know. And so that's exactly what the house of Tobias did. And certain, so, so Joseph and certain followers of Joseph basically cobbled together a bunch of money and saw that the Seleucids, who had just gone on this military campaign and needed cash, they said, hey, we've got cash. We'll actually give you cash if you'll put us in positions of authority and power in the land. So they cobbled together money. They raised money so that the house of Tobias could be in positions of power. They paid that to the Seleucids. The Seleucids, who were cash-strapped, said, absolutely, sounds good to us. You're in authority. It was as simple as that. He who has the gold makes the rules. This is kind of the way it goes. Same way today. Uh, so then there's this feud between the two rival houses. It doesn't just go away, right? It's going to continue to go. So it actually comes to a head when, during the reign of a man named Antiochus IV, or you'll hear him called Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the appearance, the image of God. He thought highly of himself. He thought his grandfather, Antiochus the Great, was a pompous name, Antiochus Epiphanes is, uh, is even more so. Um, he, so he, co he comes to reign from 175 to 163. There are uh, obviously people inside Israel, inside Jerusalem. There are the Hellenizers. Um, they're particularly a part of the aristocracy or the aristocratic party. And they are pro-Seleucid government. Right? They're pro-Syrian. 
They are pro whoever is in charge, right? Because we want to be in power. And so they are appealing to the Syrian government. And as a, as a part of that, they are paying money to them so that they can be in positions of power. power. They are doing everything they can to appease the Seleucids. They want to Hellenize the region. They want everybody to become Greek. Everybody just needs to speak Greek. Everybody needs to do Greek things. Forget all that Jewish stuff in the past. A new day has dawned. We are Greek now, essentially. Um, and so they see this rise of Antiochus Epiphanes to be a, a good thing for them. They're going to they're appeal to him, and it's going to be a, a means of gaining power. Um, and so as a result of that, the legitimate high priest, Onius III, he is pro-Ptolemy. He's pushing back against the Seleucids. Remember, he's of the house of Onius. He is pushing back largely against the Hellenization. He's pushing back largely against the Seleucid Empire. He mostly wants, let's go back to the way things were. We want to be uh, more conservative. Okay. Well, soon after all of these wars begin to take place, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, comes to the throne. Joseph, who changed his name from... uh, from Joseph, which means, which is a which is a Hebrew word, he changes his name to the Greek version of that, Jason. Uh, you know, he wants to be hip and cool like the rest of the people who are ruling. He changes his name to Jason to just kind of be Hellenized. Um, he, uh, who is the actually ends up being the brother of Onius, becomes the high priest. How does he do that? By paying tribute. So Onius sends him on sends him to uh, basically pay tribute to the king uh, on his behalf. And when he does, he takes a bunch of temple furniture and he gives it to the king and says, you think my brother is paying homage to you? I will pay more. And so he ends up becoming the high priest simply by bribe. Uh, Now, this presents obviously a big problem because this particular individual, Jason, wants to hasten... Hellenization in the land of Palestine. He wants it to become Hellenized overnight. Um, And obviously, this whole thing does not appease the Orthodox Jews. In particular, this this group called the Hasidim, or the pious ones. Um, These are the predecessors to the Pharisees. So, when the, the most important thing I think you can hear about the, the battle that's going on right now between the progressive um, elites who want to push towards Hellenization and the people who are Orthodox who want to push against, against that whole process is that most of this is the beginnings of what we find in the New Testament battles. So what is going on between Jesus and the elites has a lot to do with what's happening here in the 160s, the 170s um, BC. This has long roots back into this time period where people want to move towards Hellenization, they want to move towards getting along with the government. Even the people that are so-called conservatives in this time, the House of Onius, you can see even in them, they're okay with some Hellenization. They're okay with some progressive, you know, 
let's keep the peace here, let's get along with the government that's in control. None of them are, are out there saying what Jesus is saying. And you'll even find in the Gospels, if you read it closely, you'll hear, in, especially in the Gospel of John, where he gives insight into the debate that's going on in amongst the powerful elite, the Pharisees, who are the conservatives of the, of the group, and the Sadducees, who are the liberals of the group, where they're talking with each other going, we can't stir up the kind of controversy that he's wanting to stir up with the Romans. They'll kill us and they'll remove us from power. More than anything, the house of Onius and the house of, of well, the other house, Tobias, more than anything, they want power. So when, when you hear like the conservative ideals coming from the house of, of Onius and the progressive ideals coming from the house of Tobias, more than anything, they want power. So they're willing to do just about whatever it takes to, to keep things the way they are, in some sense, so that they maintain some sense of control. Does that make sense? So you even see Onius' brother, Joseph, going to the king, and he's wanting to pro progress Hellenization. And he becomes terrible for the whole land, though not as terrible as the house of Tobias. Okay? I think as brother. I think if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's brother. Um, that's what I got there. Uh, whatever I've got on the sheet, that's what, I, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, so the Orthodox Jews who are in the area, the, the uh, pious ones, or you've heard of Hasidic Jews that are there today, that's what that means, is pious ones, the Hasidim. Uh, so the Hasidic Jews are a, that we see today are a long, long, long removed ancestor of the Pharisaic class, right? So they are the holy ones, the pious ones, the righteous ones. They do not like this at all because essentially what's now happened in this whole transition, Onius III, who was the rightful uh, high priest in the, in the land, essentially appointed by God, effectively, okay, is what the high priest is. Now the high priestly office has been bought and paid for. He's been removed, his brother's been put in because he paid the most money. Well, that's not how the high priest is chosen in the land. And so you have a tremendous problem with that. And so the people at home who are just the average, everyday, common people working every day for a living are going, wait a second, what happened to Judaism? What happened to lineage of Aaron? What happened to the priest having to act an actual function and going into the temple and doing all the things that they're supposed to do? Now it became the office of the highest bidder? That doesn't make any sense. And so the people who are at home, the commoners, which are always represented by the Pharisees, by the way, in the New Testament even, the, the, the people who are, in are not happy with this at all. Their only consolation is that Jason, who is the brother of Onius, is from the conservative party. He's at least from the right house. All right? We don't like him. We think he's an idiot, and we think he's leading this country to hell in a handbasket, but at least he's one of us. Now, how does that work? <laughs> at least he's on our team. <laughs> Don't answer that. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, not yet. Hold on to that. The Essenes are coming. Yeah, they're coming. Uh, not, they're not, we haven't gotten to them yet. Uh, okay, so um, 
also, by the way, let me say on that, let me go back a slide. You, Timothy's questions, question was, where, when did the Essenes start? Or is this where the Essenes started? The Essenes, we're going to talk about them later, but they're a group out in the wilderness. They basically go out into the wilderness, and they wear a lot of funny garments, and they eat a lot of strange things like locusts and honey. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, the Essenes are a particularly pious group of people. These are people who are like, You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? These are people that preserved those Dead Sea Scrolls. That's where they came from. From their hand, they wanted to preserve the, the text of uh, the Hebrew Bible, and so they, they were the ones that took copious notes and preserved all those things. Um, so the question was, is, that, is this when they started? And the answer to that question is, we're not totally sure. <laughs> Believe it or not, in this time period, there's not a, just a, a gads of information. Right, so you're having to cobble together particular sources. So we'll get to them in just a little bit, not not tonight, but soon. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, uh, you can see where the Essenes, where a group would say, "We're moving out into the wilderness. Forget you, people." Um, we're going to go off the grid, right? Uh, you know, so, they, of course. So, they, they were consoled by the fact that, hey, at least he's part of the Orthodox party. However, their consolation was quickly dashed when a rival, with the help of the house of Tobias, so right now Onius owns the high priestly office, and the house of Tobias is going, wait, you can buy the high priestly office? Well, why didn't we think of that? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cobble together more money, and we're going to uh, basically put our own man on the seat. And so there's a man named Menelaus, who basically then goes to Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, and offers him even more money to become the high priest. And so out with Jason, in with Menelaus, right? Because he's the highest bidder, right, for the high priestly office. So not only did he and his followers support the Greek way of life, but they also hated orthodoxy, and worst of all, they introduced worship of the Greek gods into the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? So, here you've got conservative party but more progressive member of the conservative party who becomes high priest and is still leading in a pretty progressive direction. Though he belongs to the conservative party. And here comes the liberal party who says we're going to put our own man in position of power by bribing with more money, cobbling together more money, kick him out, and you only thought that was progressive. We're going to take you in a, a direction you've never really seen before or at least this generation hadn't. And so they begin worshiping the Greek gods in the temple. All right. So this was obviously a marked change from past Greek rule where there was religious tolerance of some in some case they were able to um, able to preserve their own religion and their own worship. 
it seemed to the Jews in the land that they were being subjected to Antiochus Epiphanes' desire to push Hellenization. And there's no question that Antiochus had a, had a desire to push stronger the Hellenization into all these cultures. So he was very much in favor of Menelaus being on the throne. So when Menelaus comes along to Antiochus and says, I'll offer you more money to take the high priestly office, and I want to go in the direction of leading, uh, leading Hellenization in the land to the point where we're worshiping Greek gods, well, Antiochus Epiphanes goes, that sounds fantastic. It's yours. So all the Jews back home, particularly those, the working class people like you and I, are going, wait, now everything has changed. This car that I bought used from you know, Joe's Car Mart is now starting to ride rough about 5,000 miles in. Okay? Sawdust was in the engine, apparently. Okay? And so now everything's starting to fall apart, and Antiochus Epiphanes is really pushing, instead of religious tolerance, Greek culture, and at the same time, he's wanting to not only consolidate power, make everyone Greek, but then also extend his kingdom. So he wants to rule more areas. He wants to rule Egypt now, right? They're up to the borders of Egypt, but he's not comfortable with that. He wants to push further in now that we've got a little capital. So, simultaneous to all of those events going on in Jerusalem, Antiochus begins a campaign in Egypt where he's going to try to win control of that region. Now, here's where the fun begins. Are you ready for this? All right. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of maybe just give a hint as to where we're going next week. Antiochus Epiphanes is going to go into Jerusalem eventually, and he's going to do what we all, we've probably, you've probably, the story you've probably heard before of sacrificing a pig on the altar, right? But I think normally when you hear that story, it sounds like somebody just came in out of meanness and decided to sacrifice a pig right there on the altar just to spite the Jews and see what would happen. It's not entirely what takes place, okay? Follow this for just a second. So he goes into Egypt, and he's wanting to extend his control down there. They don't have Twitter. They don't have 24-hour news. They don't have cameras or anything like that. While he's down there battling over Egypt, rumors begin to swirl back in Palestine that he died in battle down there. Well, if the power player or the king died in battle in Egypt, what happens in a power vacuum? Somebody's going to try to fill it. Well, if you, Menelaus, were put in that high priestly office by the guy who is now dead in battle, and you don't have your power player to back you in this battle, well, we're going to take it back. So, do you remember the guy named Jason? All right, well, he's out in exile. He hears of a supposedly Antiochus Epiphanes' death in Egypt, and he says all right, now's the time to take it back. So he goes back in to take the high priestly position back from Menelaus, and he succeeds in ousting Menelaus and sending him out into exile. All right, now that is Antiochus Epiphanes' guy. All right, and you just went into Palestine in the midst of all the tumult, and you took the guy that I put on the throne, and you sent him out 
because you thought I was dead? Okay, needless to say, rumors of Antiochus' death were greatly exaggerated. He's very much alive. And what he sees that's happening in Palestine is that the guy who was ousted before came in and tried to overthrow the person that he put on the throne, which is an attack on his authority. So he's trying to extend his kingdom here in Egypt, and meanwhile, there's, camp, there's fires breaking out back home, so i got to go settle those fires. So he turns around, and he goes back to Jerusalem in an effort to squash the rebellion that's taking place in there, and what is he doing? Restoring Greek worship. Because Jason, though he was in favor of Hellenization, was still from the house of Onius and wanted to preserve Jewish worship. Whereas other homeboy, Menelaus, he wanted to push Greek worship and wanted to even worship Greek gods, which involves the, the worship of Zeus, which involves the sacrificing of pigs. So the desire from the aristocracy that's moving toward Hellenization and it's desiring for Greek rule and to move the Jews from Judaism into Greek customs and culture and worship is pushing towards the sacrifice of other animals to other gods. Meanwhile, rumors of Antiochus' death or Antiochus' death creates an upheaval back home where they go, now's the time to get him out and restore Jewish worship back into the temple. So Antiochus Epiphanes is coming back to Palestine back to Jerusalem to ensure not only that his people are in charge, but that the Jews understand unequivocally that this temple is reserved for the worship of Zeus. Okay, Here's what you need to pay attention to. Um, we hear in the book of Daniel of this abomination that causes desolation. We hear of uh, which is, we're going to talk a little bit more of that next week. We hear in Matthew, Jesus refers to the abomination that causes desolation. And when we think of that, normally we think only of a future times event, right? Where there's going to be some abomination that causes desolation. Um, what we'll see next week is that the abomination causes desolation. The abomination is not the ruler coming in doing an abominable thing. The abomination that causes the desolation is when the people of God begin to worship something other than God. That's the abomination. And it causes desolation because God will punish his people for worshiping things other than him. Always. So, always. This is, this is inevitably the case in Jewish history or, yeah, anywhere. When God's people begin to worship something other than God, he acts swiftly to take them out. Just think about that. Was it Babylon that destroyed the temple? Or was the temple destroyed far earlier than that when God's people began to worship things other than God? Was it Antiochus 
and the Greek culture that destroyed the temple? Or was it when God's people began to worship Zeus in that temple? Was it the Romans that destroyed the temple? Or was it God's people that destroyed the temple when they used it for something other than a house of prayer for all nations? Jesus is very clear when he comes in. This place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. Well, what happens 40 years later? Decimated. Invariably, God cares about the worship of His own name. And as soon as His people deviate from the worship of His own name, He takes them out. I, I will tell you very honestly, I am deeply concerned about the church in America especially today. Because more often than not, what we desire more than anything, just to put it very frankly, butts in the seats. And that seems to be all we care about. Seems to be all, and, and what do we do to get them in the seats? We'll do anything to get them in the seats. We'll compromise the teaching. We'll water it down to where it's nothing. Where you, you leave with a helpful psychological pick-me-up, but you don't get actual real meaning from the text. A helpful quiz that you can go through in your mind when you hear a sermon, when you hear me preach, when you hear anybody preach, is when I read this text, do I think, the author of that text sat down to tell everyone throughout history that would ever read it that that's coming out of the mouth of the pastor. Did the author who wrote this mean to tell me that? And every Christian that has ever read this was that what he was communicating? Because if you, if you really think about it, it eliminates half of the psychological babble that comes out of pulpits these days. It's meaningless and it's void and it only ever applies to a 21st century Christian in the West. It doesn't apply to anybody else. Nobody could ever read that and get that out of it. It can't mean what it's never meant. You understand that? It can't mean what it's never meant. So we have to ask ourselves when we're reading the Bible... What was Luke, or what was Paul, or what was whomever wrote it? What were they actually telling to the audience that they wrote it to? What were they supposed to understand him saying when he wrote this? And then what does that actually mean for my life today? And I promise you, it won't be ten ways to have a better marriage. I promise you, it will be Christ right in the middle of it. It will be drawing your attention from yourself, from your marriage, from your friendships, from your, the money in your bank account. It will draw your attention away from that and straight to Christ. Because the biblical authors had in mind that if your eyes were on Christ, your marriage will improve. Your friendships will improve. The way you spend your money will improve. Not because you're getting tips on how to do all those things. 
but because you're focusing on exalting Christ with your life first. So my concern is, if this is what we're seeing throughout history, that God cares about the worship of His name, what is He doing now to the church in America who is branded as the church, but doesn't so much care about the cross as much as they care about putting rear ends in the seats? What's He going to do then? Questions? Quickly, Timothy. Well, yeah, and next week we're going to be on what Antiochus does when he comes into Jerusalem. And hang in with me, because we're, we're getting through this. We're quickly getting into the hundreds. We're going to be getting into the time of the Romans really pretty soon. And a lot of the stuff in the New Testament is going to begin to take shape. So our, my goal is we're going to get to the New Testament probably within the next, my hope is within the next five weeks or so. And once we get to the, the Romans and the New Testament, we'll be quickly going through the New Testament time and kind of setting the historical groundwork of the formulation of the church. And then we'll be getting into eschatology in times. I know that's a big thing and, you know, that kind of stuff that people really like to hear about. But uh, we're not going to fight, so we're going we're gonna, <laughs> we to, we got from now until then to kind of uh, just uh, wrap our minds around that. All right, so that's the idea. Let me pray for us as we leave. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way that you've shaped history and, and grateful for an opportunity to even just take a look closer at it and the way that you have worked throughout history in both the ways that you have blessed your people and the ways that you have brought judgment on your people. I pray it's a warning to us. I, I pray that uh, we evaluate our church, we evaluate any any church or any body that would ever proclaim the name of Christ on the grounds of how they think about, preach, pray to exalt the name of Jesus. So I pray that would become our evaluation of, of everything. I don't want us to look at that in a boastful way as if we're doing it and nobody else is. I don't want us to constantly be critics of the church and accusers of the church, but can you raise up in us the appropriate level of concern for your people who proclaim your name and attempt to proclaim your gospel? May it be at the center of everything that we do and everything we think and every, every way that we evaluate what is going on in a church for good or for ill. Pray that you would give us help in that way and that we would be on our knees in prayer of concern for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing the temptation of capitulating the gospel to something else to appease the masses. Pray that you would give us help in that regard as a church to faithfully preach your word 
whether the culture is with us or against us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.